Welcome back to Russian Roulette, the podcast from the Russian Eurasia Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I'm your host, Jeff Mankoff. Uh, this week on Russian Roulette, I talk with Joanna Lillis, uh, a journalist based in uh, Almaty in Kazakhstan. Uh, she covers Central Asia for The Economist, The Guardian, Eurasianet, and other publications. And she's the author of the recent book, Dark Shadows, Inside the Secret World of Kazakhstan. Joanna, thank you for, for joining us. Hi, uh, Jeff, and thanks for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be on Russian Roulette today. Well, glad you could join us. So tell us uh, a little bit about the book. Uh, this is kind of a uh, deep dive into the, the workings of, of Kazakhstan's political system. Uh, so what impelled you to, to do this dive, and what did you find that, that surprised you? You've lived in Kazakhstan for quite a while, I should say. Um, yes, that's right. I've been in Kazakhstan since 2005. So the book is, re- is really based on 13 years of on-the-ground reporting from Kazakhstan. Um, so, uh, well, what empowered me to, to write the book, which, as you say, is a deep dive into the politics of Kazakhstan, but also into its history, its identity politics, uh, and so on, um, was the fact that I think that, um, you know, Kazakhstan is a really untold story Um in the world. Mm. Um, one of the problems we have as journalists in Central Asia is um, that our region is so overshadowed by its giant, powerful and vocal neighbors. That's, of course, Russia and China. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, you know, Central Asia is a vast region and Kazakhstan is a vast country. And the size of Western Europe. The size of Western Europe, indeed. Um, and, you know, I, I, I think it's a shame when the world doesn't know about it. I mean, I, 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 as we know, sometimes you, you say Kazakhstan, you get a completely blank look on people's faces. They just can't picture where it is or what it is. And I wanted to put that right. Mm-hmm. And I also wanted my one of my prime motivations here was to give the people of Kazakhstan a voice because it seems to me that people in Central Asia, perhaps more so than in other places, people often like to speak for the Central Asians. Um, you know, Russia likes to speak for them. Um, their own governments like to speak mm-hmm. for them without asking what they want in these authoritarian countries. And I wanted the people to speak for themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I should say that I think in Washington, we tend to collectively think about these countries as their governments. Uh, and to the extent that there are conversations about developments in Kazakhstan or other parts of Central Asia, in Washington, they tend to focus on the government says this, the relationship between the American government and the Kazakh government is like this. And there is less of that kind of grassroots perspective. But also, as the title of your book indicates, this is really about uh, sort of making sense of, of the connections and the uh, the people who who dominate Kazakhstan and what their uh, priorities are. Um, so, tell us a little bit about about what you found. I mean, what uh, what makes Kazakhstan tick? Wow, <laughs> that's a complicated question. I mean, when it comes to the politics of Kazakhstan, obviously there is one towering figure who just overshadows everything else. That's Nursultan Nazarbayev, the president. Um, this year, um, in four months' time, in fact, um, there'll be a bit of a m- momentous anniversary um, in Kazakhstan because he will have been in power, in fact, for 30 years. Now, of course, Kazakhstan has only been in, uh, will have been independent for 28 years later this year. But Nursultan Nazarbayev was appointed to lead Kazakhstan 
Kazakhstan in before the collapse of the Soviet Union, so June 1989, so 30 mm-hmm. years in power. Um, so he's a towering figure um, and, um, you know, love him or, or, or hate him, <laughs> um, you know, the, you can't deny the, the impact of his, his rule. Yeah. He's, he's, led he's been central to Kazakhstan's entire existence as a country. Exactly. And, you know, he, he is now, you know, celebrated as a founding father with varying degrees of adulation that, that some of his people um, like and some of his people, you know, find it a bit much. You know, some people believe it's a cult of personality. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, he, that that's one of the things that I explored. I didn't, I don't want the book to be about Nusultan Nazarbayev or to be about the elites, actually. I wanted it to be about more about ordinary people and their reactions. Um, but of course, um, the, the, the figure of Nazarbayev and his impact on Kazakhstan is, is something that you can't ignore. In fact, my book opens with Nazarbayev celebrating the 10th anniversary of his city that was back in 2008, the city he founded, mm-hmm. Astana. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, grandiose celebrations. And we saw more of that this year when it was the 20th anniversary, right. in fact. Um, so that's one of the things. Uh, what You know, what kind of system has he built? Now, the findings... Um, political system. Um, The findings of that are, let's say they're mixed. I I didn't want to uh, ignore his positive legacy in Mm. my book. Many people admire Nursultan Nazarbayev, um, although he's an authoritarian leader. Many people admire him for what he has done, um, you know, which is deliver most of his rule, uh, um, rising, gradually rising living standards and um, um, to keep together, to build a cohesive nation, more or Mm. less, out of a disparate country, a melting pot that he inherited from the Soviet Union to deliver, broadly speaking, stability. Um, Many of his people People look to neighboring countries and, and they feel lucky that they live yeah. in Kazakhstan. However, having said that, um, you know, the, the entire section one of my book, um, of Dark Shadows, the book, um, section one is called um, The Making of a Potentate. I think that tells you mm. um, what it's about, um, as well as the positives. You know, there, there's no denying there are a lot of negatives. Um, and I trace some of these processes, the gradual erosion of what political freedoms did exist at mm-hmm. the beginning of his rule into a, well, what I called a potentate and into a system where 98% of the people uh, vote for the president, where there is no opposition in mm-hmm. elections. Um, you know, I, I personally think this is a mistake. You're building a sclerotic system that uh, that, that doesn't listen to the people. You're, you're, you're creating a myth that 98% of the people support support one man. Well, there's no opposition to vote for anyway. But, you know, this kind of um, system is is not really viable or sustainable. It's the problem that any sort of very centralized system has, which is that there's a single point of failure. And if something happens to Nazarbayev or at the point when he decides to step down, um, then nobody knows what happens. There's not a, a, a process for aggregating public views or channeling them into into policy. Indeed. And of course, this is all coming to the fore right now. I mean, as I said, he's been in power for, well, 30 years or 28 years, the independent country, and he's 78, 79 this year. And um, he, this, you know, it, it, political transition, a change of president is inevitable. <laughs> we all know that. Um, now, we do see signs of succession planning. But what, what the other thing that we do see is um, is that the system is so rigidly built that the reforms that, that have been enacted in order to prepare for a political succession eventually, although no one knows when or how it will mm. happen, will Nazarbayev step down or will he 
you know, us away in office as neighboring in Uzbekistan, in neighboring Uzbekistan, Islam Karimov did. But we do see signs of um, reforms in order to try and build something maybe a bit more collegial. But mm-hmm. uh, all that that the authorities have have done is enact some some reforms that are intended to create a more collegial system where parliament um, t- plays a greater role and where the, the, the government also plays a greater role, where it's not a one-man show, if you like. Mm-hmm. Um, however, you know, if you enact reforms to a parliament composed 100% of... Uh, people are hand-selected. <laughs> yeah, people are hand-picked as Nazarbayev loyalists. And these reforms are, are meaningless. Um, and likewise, you know, if... If if all decision making is, is is coming from Nazarbayev, you know the government again, it, it, its hands are tied. What of course remains to be seen is when the time eventually does come, mm-hmm. perhaps those reforms will start to become more meaningful. Right. I think even if you have a handpicked parliament, those people are going to have different views about certain issues, and given the opportunity to actively debate them, I think you can see potentially interesting outcomes come out of that. Um, you know, the transition in Uzbekistan was surprising in a lot of ways because, I mean, it was unscheduled. Um, the the incumbent died in office uh, rather suddenly. And the succession sort of took place behind closed doors. It was unclear what the, the nature of the, the political bargaining going on was. Um, but it seems that it's actually led to a more open system. It's led to some degree of reforms. I wouldn't exactly call it democratization, but it's led to um, some positive changes in a way that I think a lot of us probably didn't expect when we were talking about what the succession planning scenario in Uzbekistan would look like. Is that something that people you you interviewed, you talked to in, in working on the book, uh, had thoughts about? Is it something that came up? It is. And of course, yes, Islam Karimov died while I was writing the book. And so there, were, there was a lot of interest in Kazakhstan and how that was set proceeding in neighboring Uzbekistan. Uh, I think one of the issues in Kazakhstan is is that perhaps um, succession is going to be, is it, I believe it's more complicated than mm-hmm. in Uzbekistan. You've got, I think you've got a broader base of competing elites, I mean political elites as well as economic mm-hmm. elites. And I think you've also got the, the um, well, identity politics much more greatly at play because, um, you know, Kazakhstan, has, one third of its people are ethnic minorities mm-hmm. and um, the it's also uh, perhaps more important well russia takes a close interest in political leadership in any any former soviet country but kazakhstan mm-hmm. is is closest ally and um you know immediate neighbor unlike right. uzbekistan and a significant percentage of that ethnic minority population is russian exactly yes yeah. still uh, just under 20% of the population is russian so um you know there, there there are all kinds of things that play in the kazakh succession that weren't perhaps at play in the uzbek succession and the other thing i think is that nazarbayev nosultan nazarbayev is a very hard act to follow you know right. he's got big shoes to fill, <laughs> you know, and that's um, you know he's he's also got many elements. Uh, uh, there are positive elements to his rule that uh, that will be hard to replicate. I mean, including including um, the element of luck, uh, the oil boom well, that, that sure. throughout the two thousands, pretty much, um, and that's not coming back. The government knows that and acknowledges mm-hmm. that in its forecasts, and so there there are all kinds of complexities to this succession, um, including, um, including, for example, the fact that 
as an elder statesman of the of the former Soviet Union, um, because of his age and the the length of his rule, you know, Nazarbayev um, can talk to Putin, I wouldn't say as an equal for sure, um, <laughs> but, you know, he, he can punch his weight, not yeah. above it, but he can punch mm-hmm. his weight. Now, a, a successor is going to, you know, be viewed very much as a, a junior partner mm-hmm. um, in, in this relationship. And likewise, sitting down with Chinese leadership is going to be, you know, complex. Right. Okay, so we've talked a lot about Nazarbayev, but as you were pointing out, this is really a book about Kazakhstan and the and the Kazakh people. So there's a lot of vignettes, a lot of stories in the book. I don't know, maybe there one you want to share with us that sort of you know encapsulates something important about the country? Well, as you say, there are um, a lot of vignettes. In fact, the book is structured in such a way that every chapter, it's really about a a story about a person, a set Mm -hmm. of people, or or certainly a set of events involving people. But it's very much much a story about people. Mm -hmm. You know, there there, there are some some shocking stories in Mm -hmm. in the first part of the book about, which is about politics, human rights, media, freedoms, and civil rights, and so on. You know, we, we find people's lives being destroyed. Um, you know, I, I, I trace stories that, uh, such as the murder of uh, opposition leader Altenbeck Sarsambayev. That was mm-hmm. back in 2006. Um, and the impact that that had on the people around him and, he, you know, his family and his, his associates um, and the the role of, of Nazarbayev's own family in that. Mm-hmm. His, his so this is kind of an underworld story. An underworld, a sort of, if you like, in some, in some elements, a deep state story. Mm-hmm. Um, um and also, um, so and I also tell the the, the tales of, of journalists who suffered mm-hmm. um, because of their uh, standing up for their principles, or because of wanting to to get the story out there. I mean, of course, um, you know, sometimes there's been you know accusations of, of bias against um, the independent or opposition journalists, if you like, yeah. as well as against the, as pro government journalists. But still, you know, it's a matter of freedom of speech, and um, you know, I tell the story um, a, a long story of. Of the of the the Republican newspaper, which mm-hmm. involves all kinds of um, repressive tactics to drive it out of existence over a very long period, um, including pinning the um, decapitated corpse of a dog to uh, the wall of its editorial office, and Subtle. including <laughs> yeah, um, sending a funeral wreath to its editor, and including um, also much more recently, um, you know, jailing journalists who tried to set up a successor outlet mm-hmm. after it was closed down. Um, but also there are other vignettes that may be more positive. Uh, Looking at the the identity issues about history and identity, we talked to some absolutely fascinating people. I tracked down a woman in her nineties who mm. uh, had clear memories of uh, walking to China as a child, all the way from Kazakhstan, in order to escape the famine uh-huh. of the nineteen thirties. And um, a, a Chechen uh, lady in her seventies, uh, living in northern Kazakhstan, who was deported there at the age of three months. Uh-huh. And, family during world war ii during world war ii yeah so when people talk about the things that nazarbayev has done well um one thing that you hear a lot is this ability to create something like a civic identity Uh, so people think of themselves as kazakhstanis to a greater degree than they think of themselves as ethnic kazakhs or ethnic russians or Chechens or Koreans or whatever. Um, was that something that seems to sort of hold up in, in the, the context of your 
reporting? Um, that's something I explored, and certainly um, at some length. I'm talking to all many groups in Kazakhstan. You know, Kazakhs. Um, uh, I went to um, the north of Kazakhstan and uh, interviewed Russian um, community leaders, Slavic community leaders, and I speak to Tajiks in the south, Uyghurs, Uzbeks, um, all kinds of people, Chechens in the north. Um, no, I have to say that does mm-hmm. not hold up at all. <laughs> now that's the government narrative, mm-hmm. um, and when. Nazarbayev um, inherited uh, this melting pot from Kazakhstan yeah. that we know is all connected to historical processes um, that took place, particularly in Stalinist times. Um, his answer to the challenge that he, he faced of building a cohesive, he faced unexpectedly, I may add, of building a cohesive nation out of this was, you know, in many ways laudable. Um, in- inclusivity is his mm. policy. You know, Kazakhstan is a land of peace and accord is a billboard right. we see all the time in Kazakhstan and um, creating this Kazakhstani identity. But I have to say that while many welcome this and they are happy to live in a country that officially doesn't tolerate discrimination on, on say, you know, ethnic grounds and so on, um, you know, there are, uh, I would say there are also disaffected people. Mm-hmm. And really, um, you know, these people are, are really Kazakhs mm-hmm. who, who harbor long-standing grievances um, dating back to Soviet times right. um, about the position of Kazakhs in Kazakhstan, where, where you know, many Kazakhs say um, that they were treated like second-class ca- yeah. citizens. And, you know, there are, to, to this day in Kazakhstan, there are, you know, um, you know, people who, are, who express grievances over the fact that Russian is, is so widespread still and mm-hmm. um, over uh, issues such as access to land and, and, and poverty that affects Kazakhs. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I kind of tackled this, this uh, issue in a couple of chapters. Um, and one of them, um, I had to look back to 1986 when, mm-hmm. of course, I wasn't in Kazakhstan. Um, but um, I, I spoke to people who took part in what are called the Jaltoksan or December protests um, mm-hmm. at that time when a new leader was, in, was imposed as they saw it on yeah. Kazakhstan by Moscow and he was an ethnic Russian rather than a Kazakh. And they told me all about the grievances they harbored at that time. They looked back, you know, 25, 30 years. At, I, t- I often spoke to them on anniversaries and, and they, um, you know, said we were treated like second-class citizens. And unfortunately, we still hear in, in Kazakhstan that some Kazakhs still feel uh, marginalized, perhaps. Mm-hmm. They feel that poverty affects them more than uh-huh. other groups and so on. And, and the language issue is a major one. Yeah, so let me ask you about the language issue. Um, how much of the population at this point is Kazakh speaking and how rapidly is use of Kazakh expanding as a, as a means of communication? Use of Kazakh is expanding, you know, um, uh, I don't know if rapidly is the right word. Um, certainly Kazakhs, uh, Kazakhstan's cities are becoming much more Kazakh-speaking um, mm-hmm. than they, they were in the past because of different migration processes and so on. Um, people migrating from the rural areas yeah. that are predominantly Kazakh-speaking. Yes. And also, um, of course, because there is a program, um, government program to bring ethnic Kazakhs from other parts of the world to Kazakhstan mm-hmm. um, so that, they, that many of them are, are Kazakh-speaking too. Um, unfortunately, we don't have uh, good, um, good, fresh, up-to-date and reliable data on language capability. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we will have more soon um, because the last data we have is, is really from the last census. That's 10 years ago now, yeah. so we have another right. one due this year. Um, but what that last census um, showed us was... Um, was that, that basically um, two-thirds of the population speak Kazakh. Now, funnily enough, two-thirds of the population are ethnic Kazakh. So what we see is that use of Kazakh is not expanding into mm-hmm. other groups. Right. Um, and I think that 
that I would identify as a government failure, a serious government failure. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it wouldn't be reasonable to suggest that people should abandon their, 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 their native language and start speaking Kazakh. But what I find personally unreasonable is that um, uh, so many people leave school without speaking Kazakh today. Now, that is a failure of the education system and a failure of government policy. Mm-hmm. Um, so how does the education system work in terms of, of language? It's bilingual or... Yeah, I mean the inclu- inclusivity of uh, you know of Astana extends uh, very much so very much to the education um, system. So you know people have choices. Mm-hmm. Um, you can educate your child in Russian, primarily in Russian, yeah. in which case they should learn Kazakh as a foreign language, or primarily in Kazakh, in which case they learn mm-hmm. Russian as a foreign language. And there are other languages in which you can educate uh, as well. You know Uzbek and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and in higher education, the, the two choices are basically Russian or Kazakh. Yeah. Um, but but um, even in higher education, you have that choice. Yes, you have that choice, but only those two languages, yeah. I believe. Um, but uh, I think what what the problem is that the the teaching of of Kazakh and um, I have experienced this myself um, because I have taken Kazakh classes is quite hidebound by by. Um, Old-fashioned methods. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's hidebound, of course. I mean, it, it's only you know 20, 25 or twenty-seven years ago that the that that they they even thought of teaching Kazakh as a foreign language right. to people. So, however, that's quite a long time to establish to some practices. The yeah. yeah, and there are there are you know many 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 examples in the world of of countries that successfully teach their language to other people. English as a foreign language, Turkish as a foreign language, Russian as a foreign language. Um, so I you know I think it is a failure in, in Kazakhstan of the education system. Um, also, I think the government has um, has presented knowledge of Kazakh as a duty of every citizen, mm-hmm. um, but not followed through on that right. with, with, with making it happen. Um, and I also think it's failed to take account, to make comparisons, reasonable comparisons, um, with maybe other post-colonial societies and how they've dealt with language issues. India, Malaysia, mm-hmm. never a thought of taking this into account, merely saying, let's all speak Kazakh, but... Um, the official policy is also that everyone should speak Russian as well. Official right. policy is, you know, 90% of people should speak Kazakh and, you know, everyone should. But what, what the census showed us was that knowledge of Russian was near universal, mm-hmm. um, but knowledge of Kazakh was restricted to two-thirds of the population. Right. And again, it's, it's a, a post-colonial phenomenon that people from the formerly dominant group often resist learning the local language. You know, we see this in, in well, India or Africa or, or anywhere else. So I, I don't think it's surprising that ethnic Russians, for example, are resistant to learning Kazakh. But there also is this this policy aspect to it, I suppose, where you know, Kazakh has not emerged as the, the, the lingua franca for different groups communicating amongst themselves. That That does strike me as a little surprising. Indeed, yes, and um, and that's where I think um, you know that's where I think the education system has failed. I mean, Kazakhstan performs extremely well in international rank- rankings in in maths and science. Mm-hmm. So if they can teach their people maths and science so well, why can't they teach um, you know the younger generation? Leave aside the older generation, yeah. but why can't they teach the younger generation Kazakh? And it simply isn't happening. Yeah, and again, it's different from the ca- the situation in a number of the other Central Asian countries. Um, 
Um, I've noticed uh, in Uzbekistan, for example, that it's pretty common to find younger people who don't speak Russian. Um, now, whether being bilingual or monolingual in Uzbek is the best choice for their future career prospects is another discussion. But the state is at least undertaking policies to spread uh, Uzbek as a means of communication. Um, now, again, Uzbekistan never had the large Russian um, settler population that Kazakhstan had. It doesn't have a common border with Russia, and so some of the concerns about Russian responses are different. But uh, nonetheless, I think it's it, it's interesting to compare. Absolutely, yes. I mean, it, it is interesting to, to compare. And of course, um, uh, that, like, as I said, this, this language issue is a big grievance among Kazakh-speaking Kazakhs. And, um, you know, there, there are also tensions between Kazakh-speaking Kazakhs and Russian-speaking Kazakhs because, uh, you know, Kazakh-speaking Kazakhs believe that certainly all Kazakh, some, some, sorry, believe that um, certainly all Kazakhs, um, you know, should be embracing their right, language. Speak their language. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But of course, you know, it's all connected to Soviet policies and to, mm-hmm. uh, you know, at the time in under the Soviet Union, uh, the way to get ahead was to send your child to Russian sure. school and to, um, you know, and, and many, many people began to speak Russian at home. And that was a particular phenomenon in Kazakhstan. Yeah. Um, so it becomes linked with class and mm-hmm. educational status and uh, all of that. I mean, again, India is probably a good comparison where, you know, of course, if you wanted to get ahead, you learned English. Mm-hmm. Um, and then after independence, uh, that has still lingered to some degree, even, you know, decades on. You know, one of the things you mentioned um, before is part of Nazarbayev's policy of, of trying to Kazakhify the, the country was this policy of welcoming back ethnic Kazakhs from from other parts of the world. Um, this has been an issue that's been in the news recently because of um, Kazakhs from Xinjiang and how they're sort of being caught up in the, the crackdown there. But could you talk a little bit more about that? I mean, where else are there significant Kazakh diasporas and what has been their experience uh, once they've come back to Kazakhstan or come to Kazakhstan? Yeah, this is an interesting um, topic. And it was a gr- quite a groundbreaking initiative, you know, from a global perspective. Um, when, after independence, after the Soviet Union collapsed in '91, um, Nazarbayev chose to uh, just invite all Kazakhs to come um, living around the world in different places to come and live in Kazakhstan. Um, because at that time, you know, there were, um, I forget the exact figure, but there were similar numbers in Kazakhstan abroad, Kazakhs abroad, as there were in Kazakhstan. Mm-hmm. Um, now, um, the kind of countries that they were living in, some of them post-Soviet countries, so Russia, um, Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan, uh, Turkmenistan, um, but also, um, you know, Kazakhs were blown abroad by the winds of history, um, mm-hmm. and they, they they ended up very far afield sometimes. I mean, the, certainly Kazakhs in China, you mentioned um, the Xinjiang issue that's been in the news lately with uh, the camps there, which we'll return to perhaps in a second. Um, But Kazakhs in Mongolia, Kazakhs Mm -hmm. in Iran, Turkey, um, so all kinds of places, even Kazakhs in Kashmir. The reasons that that Kazakhs uh, ended up uh, in other countries are are varied. I mean, for some, it's simply their ancestral roaming grounds in in parts of, of, uh, say, China, Mongolia. Um, For others, um, you know, they they fled uh, anything from revolution, famine, Mm -hmm. Um, and, and uh, you know, war, uh, and so on. So, this choosing to, you know, just welcome them back into Kazakhstan was a was a sort of a imaginative, if you like, um, 
concept, um, and it was sparked by various, um, well, different reasons, shall we say. Officially, um, this was presented as a way of kind of putting right the wrongs of the past, doing the right thing by mm. Kazakhs blown abroad by these winds of history. Um, and, um, you know, and they're offered perks, which have varied over the years to settle in Kazakhstan, you know. And um, um, oh, and in the years since independence, uh, figures were released um, either last year or, or the year before showing that a million have, have taken up the offer, mm. a million uh, people. Which is quite a lot in a country which has a population of, what, 17, 18? That's right. I mean, the population now is 18 million. So it's quite astonishing that a million of, of, the, of the people are, are, have returned from other countries, have come from other countries. I'm sorry. Um, so these people are known as Waralman, Waralmanda, the plural, um, which means returnee, um, which, of course, is a slightly ironic because uh, for many of them, they hadn't they, set foot in Kazakhstan. They were born in you know, Turkey, China, grown up there. But that's... An, also an informal name and it's actually not one that 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 these people like very much Mm -hmm. um and it's not one that's really it's not the official name of the of the program um now, um, so officially, as I say, putting right the wrongs of the past. But of course, there was also an unofficial, you know, national security issue. Mm-hmm. One being um, simply um, such a small population on such a large territory. Um, but of course, perhaps more more importantly, um, um, the ethnic mix of Kazakhstan yeah. at independence. I mean, uh, Kazakhstan was the only post-Soviet country at independence where the, the titular population, in this case, the mm-hmm. Kazakhs, were in a minority in their own country. Um, so um, at independence, they, they, they were the largest group, but they mm-hmm. were still in a minority. Yeah. Um, and Russians themselves numbered about 40 percent of similar, similar numbers. Um, so this, you know, it's quite a it's quite an unusual situation to be in. From the practical point of view, um, Nazarbayev, of course, didn't want to offend his own minorities, and he certainly didn't want to offend the Kremlin, uh, although in the 90s, the Kremlin had many other things yeah. on its mind. Um, so th- it's never been officially stated that the idea was to boost the Kazakh population. But of course, I mean, unofficially, it's yeah, clear that's that it was. that's <laughs> very much at least the subtext. That's very much the subtext. And uh, so um, and it, it's certainly played its role in that, along with higher birth rates mm-hmm. among Kazakhs than, say, along this Slavic population and along with emigration yes. of the Slavic population. Um, so, as I say, a million Kazakhs uh, have come to Kazakhstan to live. And um, and nowadays, you know, Kazakhstan um, numbered, you know, around 40% of the population at independence now number 67%. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Um, you know, from that point of view, uh, it's also, of course, served to make Kazakhstan to some degree more Kazakh-speaking, um, because um, uh, you know some some of the Kazakhs who come don't don't speak Russian. Some right. do if they if they grew if up. If they're in, coming from Russia, from Russia, perhaps. but if they're coming from Xinjiang or. Turkey, then presumably not. Then, yeah, almost always not. Now, this has created, in fact, um, an interesting integration challenge, which I think probably probably wasn't actually thought of until it happened. I don't think it, it, it was perhaps it was such a turbulent time in the 90s and such a, uh, um, and also it had never been done. So I think it created a, an unexpected integration challenge. One of the one of the challenges was language. As I say, you know, we've got, you know, I don't, we don't have the numbers, um, but you've got so many people who come and they, they, they get a shock, a linguistic shock, because they find Depending, of course, where they settle, because some parts of mm-hmm. Kazakhstan are more, more Kazakh-speaking than right. others. But they they find that they they, they didn't know that um, they were going to be in a Russian-speaking area, or they or certainly there were people around them with whom they cannot communicate. Yeah, well, and also how 
standardized as spoken Kazakh. I mean, if mm -hmm. you're part of a Kazakh diaspora in, say, Turkey, um, is the language that you're growing up speaking that different from the sort of standard Kazakh that's that's taught in schools in, in Almaty or Astana? Well, I think that can be an issue, but um, but certainly I've, I've um, traveled among the Kazakhs in Xinjiang and Mongolia, and I've traveled with um, Kazakh friends, and they don't have any problems okay. communicating. Um, so I think that's much less of an issue than, than the fact that Kazakhs can't, mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, it can't speak Russian. Yes. It's also quite hard to get a job in Kazakhstan if you can't speak Russian because people, it's just another skill, you know, mm -hmm. that people would rather have a bilingual yeah, employee sure. than a monolingual employee. Um, so this is, um, that's been an issue. But also there's been a culture shock issue mm -hmm. that, again, I don't think the government expected or the people. Um, let's say um, if you grew up in uh, a Soviet or post-Soviet society, you know, you came with similar uh, culture to the yeah. people in Kazakhstan let's say, if you came from Russia. I mean, of course, maybe you came from more conservative areas, mm -hmm. say, if you came from Uzbekistan, but still, this Soviet experience or post-Soviet experience has its yeah. similarities. But if you grew up in a village in Xinjiang and um, or in, you know, in, in Western Mongolia, just on the steppe, mm -hmm. um, your experience was very different. Mm -hmm. um, or, or Kashmir. Or, or Kashmir or Iran, of course, yeah. you know, religiously conservative Iran. Mm -hmm. Your ex experience was extremely different. And, and you know, I've spoken to um, people um, who've come under the program, Kazakhs, who um, who were so shocked, you know, to kind of find themselves in a, in a, in a city in Kazakhstan where, you know, people are walking around in miniskirts and right. people are talking to, in, to, Rus uh, to each other in Russian. And so that culture shock was a huge thing mm. as well. And I explore this, all of this at some length um, in Dark Shadows. Um, mm. And to do that, I spoke to, well, Waroman, if you like, uh, they don't like the word. So let's say, you know, Kazakhs who came under the, who have come under mm -hmm. the program. Um, they've talked about their integration problems. I, I particularly spoke to uh, separately to two young women from um, who were b born in, in Xinjiang um, who have made a great success of things, but who said they, they, they did face enormous integration problems. Mm -hmm. um, and I also traveled, as I said, among the Kazakhs um, in Xinjiang and in Mongolia, um, talked to them about whether they wanted to move to Kazakhstan or not. Many did. Mm -hmm. um, but what was interesting uh, was that, you know, in Mongolia, people were telling me this would be about 2009, I think. I can't remember exactly, but it's written in the book. Uh, people there were telling me, um, that yeah, they would like to that you know that uh, that the economic pull of Kazakhstan, um, especially oil boom times, mm. were was big. Um, but it was all about the economic pull there. And of course, for some people, it's about this. I want to. I'm a Kazakh. I want yeah, to live in Kazakhstan. Right. But for Mongolians, I found the economic pull in Xinjiang a different story. Now, this um, ten years later, this has burst into the the world's media. But in 2007, um, I travelled um, in Xinjiang, but um, far from um, you know far far. To the north, where the Kazakh heartlands are, um, I travelled a, a bit around Lake Kanas, where Kazakhs were telling me they were being pushed off their roaming grounds. They were being told they can't pitch yurts in the national mm -hmm. park because we've got tourists coming. Now, that's a sad tale because now, of course, we know. So, um, pretty much ten years later, so about 2017, it started to hit 
people's radar and the international media and the well, the local media in Kazakhstan too, this fact that there were problems emerging in, in Xinjiang. And then we began to hear that Kazakhs, um, along with, of course, Uyghurs, the much mm. larger population, and also Kyrgyz mm. and Hui and other, other Muslim yeah, minorities. Chinese Muslims. Chinese large. Muslims uh, were being incarcerated in camps um, that are euphemistically, in my opinion, called being, being called in the world's media re-education camps, but we should call them concentration yeah. camps. Well, re-education camps was a euphemism that, you know, that goes back to the Cultural Revolution. <laughs> yes, indeed, indeed. And and we're, we're seeing many, uh, what we're hearing um, is um, many cultural revolution-style practices taking yeah. place there, including like you singing know, chant, songs singing and praising the party. Praising and, the party, yeah. praising Mao. And, and she. And she, and uh, yeah, basically, you know, trying to, trying to forcibly integrate people into the mainstream. And, um, you know, this has been, uh, for the last now, um, almost two years now, this has been uh, a bit, bit interest in, in the world grew about this um, last year, in 2018. Um, and we're hearing what, we, what we're hearing and the uh, credible UN estimate, you know, uh, about a million mm-hmm. um, Turkic and also non-Turkic minorities, but mainly Muslims, um, incarcerated. Um, and so this has created, um, uh, you know, in, in Kazakhstan, it's been an enormous issue because uh, there are there are people who have been in camps or have relatives in camps who are living in Kazakhstan mm-hmm. or who have, um, yeah, basically, or they've also been telling tales of how there was quite a lot of cross-border communication, um, but the, the Chinese have been trying to put an end to that uh, and so really- on. A clampdown on, on, yeah, on just, um, yeah. So, you know, separating families. And it's a very, very sad story. I mean, there is some international pressure about this now. Kazakhstan in a delicate position. China is right. a big ally. Um, but, you know. Uh, and Kazakh- trading partner and neighbor. And neighbor and, and trading partner, yeah. security partner. And, of course, it puts um, Kazakhstan in, in an awkward position. But, um, you know. The government is working behind the scenes to try and resolve mm-hmm. some of the problems. But yeah, I actually remember the first time I was in Kazakhstan was in let's see, 2009, and uh, was there during the uh, outbreak of uh, ethnic violence in Xinjiang. Um, and remember seeing there were protests. I was in Almaty. There were protests in Almaty in support of the these were Uyghur. Um, uh, protests in, in Xinjiang that the Kazakhs in Almaty were supporting. Uh, and I was actually fairly surprised um, that one, that the government would sort of provide space for this kind of, of protest. Um, how much public mobilization has there been in Kazakhstan around the um, the Uyghur and, and ethnic Kazakh um, issue in, in Xinjiang today? Well, um, there's been a surprising amount. Let's put it that way, um, for, from the from the Kazakhstan perspective, because uh, you know, I mean, the expression of dissent um, in Kazakhstan is not um, well, basically not tolerated these days. Now, of course, um, what we're talking about here is not, is is not dissent against the, the government, government right. but still, um, you know, the, the still the government controls the public narrative. So the fact that any kind of discussion has been going on, and the fact that you know groups among the 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 community of Kazakhs from China are active um, in raising the issue, tells you that. Um, that it tells you a couple of things. One is that it's a big issue that mm. is not going away. And two, I suppose, is that the government doesn't feel that it can just squash the, the, the discussion altogether. And th- uh, just because it's such a sensitive topic and it involves Kazakhs. Um, and, and thirdly, it might tell you that 
possibly, um, this is speculation on my part, that the government um, might use this public expressions of dissent as a little bit of behind the scenes leverage right. against China. You know, China's a big ally. We we don't want to offend you, but, you know, we have to yeah. cope with we this. We have our so own pressure. We have our own pressure. So why don't you do something? Yeah. You know, that, that would be the sensible thing. And Kazakhstan is very good at quiet diplomacy. Mm-hmm. So, Jenna, you're based in Kazakhstan. The book just came out. Um, so what kind of a response have you gotten in Kazakhstan? Are you kind of concerned about uh, how people might respond? Um, well, so far, as you said, the book's um, just come, come out, came out in the UK at the end of October and um, here in the USA in, in January, late in January. It's actually not, it's not on sale in Kazakhstan. Um, mm-hmm. It's not distributed in Kazakhstan right now. I mean, it's an English language book yeah. and it's obviously directed at a foreign audience. Um, as for um, response, um, I mean, I've had a, a quite a warm response um, from people, let's say, on social media who are um, pleased and excited that um, someone has written about Kazakhstan because they feel mm-hmm. like sometimes they live in a black hole in yeah. terms of international media coverage or, and, there ha- you know, there hasn't been a book on Kazakhstan for a long time. Um, so I've had a warm response of people very, very interested. I've had, um, I've given a few uh, interviews to local media, Kazakh media, um, although that's uh, rather limited because, I mean, you know, it, it's clear that the book covers topics like sensitive topics such yeah. as political dissent and so right. on. So, you know, the mainstream media in Kazakhstan is tightly controlled and they, w- they won't, you know, publish material about that. Mm-hmm. However, there is space for some media um, to have published interviews with me about the book, um, very open interviews about that angle, political dissent and so on. Um, so, as I said, a warm response from people. Uh, um, as for government response, no, well, there has been no government response. I mean, the government has far better things to do than respond to my book. I think it's clear that some of the topics that I cover, you know, are not going to be welcomed. I think that's clear because, um, you know, no government wants to be held up for criticism. And it's not me criticizing, but I'm merely uh, covering the events that unfolded. However, you know, the Kazakh government is, uh, you know, is mature uh, enough to, to, to be open. I think what tells us something is that I um, have been, you know, accredited to work as a journalist in Kazakhstan for, what, 14 years this year. And, you know, I, 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 I received my, my new accreditation just before the publication of the book, um, when it, it was clear the book was going to be published. And, um, you know, I think um, the government of Kazakhstan on the international level, you know, Kazakhstan projects an image that um, we're an emerging young and emerging democracy. And from that point of view, they, they don't infringe um, international journalist reporting. Mm-hmm. And so, so you know, this is the, the, the product and I, I don't foresee any problems. Okay. I mean, that's encouraging. And it, it's certainly a contrast to a lot of the other countries in the region. Indeed. And, and you know, I think that is one of the... Of the um, the positives about about Kazakhstan that, um, you know, that there is a lot of crushing of dissent and political freedoms, but there's always, you know, some shoots. Um, there are always some positives to focus on. I think didn't Leonard Cohen sing that there's a, a chink in everything and that's where the light that's gets light in. in. <laughs> and so, you know, I like to think that this, this space um, for an international journalist to report and to publish a book on Kazakhstan is that chink. Great. Well, I'm glad we can end on Leonard Cohen. Joanna, <laughs> thank you for joining us so much. Thank you very much.
All right, that's it for our show today. Thank you, as always, for joining us. Uh, There is a link to Joanna's bio and to her book, which you can purchase at the independent bookstore of your choice, uh, in the show notes. If you haven't already, uh, please do subscribe to Russian Roulette on iTunes, uh, where you can also leave us a rating and a review. And if you don't use iTunes, you can check us out on Google Play or SoundCloud. Uh, And again, reminder, spread the word, let your friends know about us. And also, let your friends know uh, that they should send us mailbag questions, and you should send us mailbag questions too. Uh, Send them to rep at csis.org and put the words Russian Roulette in the subject line. We will do another mailbag uh, session here on Russian Roulette soon. You can also follow us on Twitter at CSIS Russia, uh, or you can follow me at Dr. J. Mankoff. Uh, and of course, as always, big thank you to everybody who works so hard every two weeks to make the podcast happen. Uh, that includes our producer, research associate, and program manager, Cyrus Newland, and the whole CSIS external relations and iLab team. Thank you, and until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.